Good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be explaining the text that I'm about to read from Galatians uh, chapter 3. It's only five verses. It won't be hard to follow along. You can do that on the screen, or you can pull one of the Bibles out of the pew rack, or if you brought your own, uh, you can follow uh, the reading. So hear the word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law? by hearing with faith. Let's take a moment and prepare our hearts to hear. Almighty God, would you rescue our expectations this morning that we're here just for another Sunday? Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to expect an encounter with you this morning? Would you now speak, Spirit of God, to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I just want to ask uh, one question, but I have to ask it in the five questions that Paul does. He really only is answering this question because he says, I only ask this. But let me think of it this way. Can you change? Can anyone change? Can we change? Now, that might seem obvious to you, or at least it is obvious, at least in an academic uh, setting, people can change. But I would propose to you that most of us functionally live as though we can, cannot change, that leopards cannot change their spots. I think it's an important question. I think it's such an important question that EP has built its uh, foundation on the fact uh, that people can change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might not know Carol, the name Carol Dweck. Uh, she's a professor at Stanford University out in California. Uh, it's pretty rare for an academic to get a book on the New York Times bestseller list. I explained to my children when they went to college why their books cost $500. It's because nobody reads those books. And so they have to get as much money as they can from students. To our chagrin. But... For an academic to get a book on the New York Times bestseller list is quite an achievement. And Dr. Carol uh, uh, Dreck wrote the book called Mindset. It is a significant book in sociology because it goes at this question, can people change? From an academic, from a person who has a tremendous amount of common grace. Special grace is what we call the Bible. God audibly speaking to his people and somebody writing that down for us to have throughout all time. Common grace is God speaking truth into creation and people observing that. And there's lots of opportunities of common grace where people have studied a particular field and have have been able to say some significant truths. You think about the artificial heart invented 
by a South African who was an atheist. And yet the, the science behind the heart, at least the artificial heart, uh, was not something that you got out of the Bible. If somebody studied that field, and by studying that field, came to an understanding of some truth. Well, this is Carol Dweck. She has studied this idea of change, and particularly from the perspective of uh, students. And anyway, she has made a few statements that I think are important for us to understand. She said in the book, Your mindset is your frame of reference. That is, the control beliefs by which one approaches life. Everybody has them. We have these sets of beliefs by which we not only think, but actually see the world. And, and, and she, you would say, well, that sounds pretty obvious. Well, it's, it's not so obvious. Because if I asked you, what are your foundational beliefs by which you live your life? I'm not talking about what you academically believe or you religiously believe, but what do you believe that determines how you live? They've become so familiar to us, we probably can't even enumerate them. And that's also something that she noticed, is that we don't even notice our mindsets. They are so ingrained in us that we don't even recognize them. We can't even articulate them because they are who we are. She says that in her book that there are primarily two mindsets out there. And that all other mindsets come from these two big overarching mindsets. The first one she calls a fixed mindset. That is, someone who uh, says that you are who you are. The talent is innate. And what intelligence you have has been given to you and no more can be given. That if something doesn't come natural to you, don't worry about trying it because it's not for you. If it was for you, it would be easy for you. A person with a fixed mindset has a fear of failure and therefore take no risk that could expose them to failing. You tend to hear fixed mindset people say things like, well, this is who I am. Don't blame me. This is who I am. Or this is who our, this is what our culture is. This is what our community is like. This is just who we are. Nothing can really be done about it. It's just how we are. She sets that over against a different kind of mindset, almost an antithesis of that mindset. And she calls it the growth mindset. If one of them, there is no growth, you're stuck. Who you are is who you are. The other one recognizes that there are qualities that are given. There is character intelligence that forms who you are, but they both can be profoundly changed. People with a growth mindset, they don't fear change because they expect change. In fact, what she says is that if you have a growth mindset, your whole life is a life of taking advantage of opportunities to change. In fact, someone has a growth mindset, recognizes that change is part of life. And you don't ever stop changing, including after you die. Because we call change after death, what? Decomposition. That's still change. And we recognize that. A person with a growth mindset does not fear change. Change is an heir to life and they embrace the challenges and changes that opportunities are before them. So she begins to wrestle with this idea. Okay, well, that's we're all driven or grooved by a mindset. Where do we get those mindsets from? Are they the product of nature or nurture or both? 
Our culture, she says, conspires to groove a mindset in all of our citizens. What she says, as the, what she is saying is, is that if you live in the United States, there already is a cultural mindset that tries to groove in you this mindset. Whether you are normally optimistic or pessimistic, the, the culture grooves that mindset and it's not the growth mindset. That by default, our culture, the American culture, grooves the fixed mindset. You are who you are. Don't try to change because you can't. This is what Dweck says. Because we have a fixed mindset, we are leading people with the best end of intentions toward a lifetime of fear, anger, frustration, resignation, and depression. Because we don't functionally believe we can change. And just as importantly, we don't believe anyone else can. Do you know where the IQ test comes from? Americans didn't invent it. We just made it popular. The IQ test was invented by Alfred Binet in Paris in the last century. Alfred Binet, Dr. Binet, recognized that, that, that even though we all don't start in the same place, we can all move toward the same place. That is, the assumption behind the IQ test was that people can change. Binet said that, I think that I can distinguish between intelligences so that those that are at the bottom end of, of the intelligence scale can become closer to the main. And so he developed the IQ test not as a fixed model, but as a growth model. The whole idea behind the IQ test was to identify where you are so that we can design ways for you to catch up. That was the idea. Isn't it ironic that the IQ test has now become the symbol not of a growth mindset, but of a fixed mindset. Whatever your IQ test is, IQ score is, that's what you will have. And it should determine what you give your life to. If you have normal IQ, please don't apply to medical school. If you have normal IQ, don't go into nuclear science because it's not for you. That's what's happened to Alfred Binet's ideas behind the IQ. It was never meant to be that. It assumes that we can't change. It has become a lifelong weight around our necks, and it was never designed to do that. The idea behind the IQ test and the idea behind Dweck's work on the mindset is you don't have to go through life like you are. You can change. In fact, one of our students, a Stanford student, said this. I had no idea there was another way to be. I don't have to go through life the way I have always gone through life. The key to her study, again, this is common grace. My guess is that when she dies and she gets to the Mount Olympus of knowledge, she's going to find that Paul and Jesus have already been there and waiting for her to catch up. But she says that the key to change is your priority of beliefs. She believes that beliefs are the key to happiness or misery. What you believe can change, and therefore you can change. If you change your beliefs, you can change who you are. You, this is where she struggles, 
because, again, she doesn't know Jesus. She doesn't know the scriptures. Common grace can only get you so far. She says that you can change your behavior. You can change your beliefs. You just can't change your heart. Now, doesn't that sound like what the Bible teaches? But that stops because she doesn't go and say, but you can still change. You just can't do it. The heart has to be changed from the outside. She doesn't have that piece of information. So as far as she can get us is that you can change, but this is all you can change. You can't go all the way. Nice to know, 2,000 years before Dweck wrote her work, Paul says, let me tell you how you can change. You can't, God can. In fact, Galatians 3 is about how God changes us. And he uses five questions to do that. So let's look at how he begins. He begins oddly in this letter. There's, By the way, the Galatians has no salutations, no greetings, no individual people mentioned. He gets right to work. And in Galatians 3, he's, he calls his readers foolish. You, you see it? Oh, foolish Galatians. I love Eugene Peterson. 20 years ago, Eugene Peterson said, I'm going to give a, a, a fresh, updated translation of, of, of the Bible. It's called The Message. And when you get to Galatians 3.1, he doesn't say, oh, foolish Galatians. That's We don't say that kind, kind of uh, uh, communication anymore. He says, you crazy people. Isn't that so much better? The context of this letter is that simply that Paul founded these churches in Galatia, which is in Asia Minor. It's a group of churches. He planted them. He grew, he was involved in the early stages of their formation. He goes away to another region of, of Europe and plants more churches. But while he, while he's away, new teachers show up. They happen to be Jewish Christians. They come to town and they say, Hey, Paul was right so far. He was right to say that Christianity, how you become a Christian is by grace alone in Christ alone received with faith alone. He, they're saying Paul's right about how you become a Christian, but Paul doesn't get you far enough. That gets you in the door to the kingdom that gets you in relationship with the church. But ultimately for you to complete that work, for you to be perfected, you need to be like a Jew. You need to become a Jew because remember, Jesus is a Jew and Judaism isn't started by man. It was started by God in order to be God's people. You had to be a Jew. So they're saying Jesus plus Judaism. And so what they said is, is in order to show that you really are a follower of Jesus, a Jew, you need to be circumcised. Now, that was not popular among the adult males. So it's not like they received that well. So for them to decide, I'm going to become a completed Jew, that's a lot of pain. So that's what they were talking about. But not just circumcision, that's just what he described, but that's the beginning. Now you have to keep all of the laws I already told you there's 613 of them. You need to uh, observe our holidays. You need to become a Jew in order to be a completed Christian. You know how we will say it? You need to be a completed Jew. The way these teachers were talking is, no, you don't need to be a completed Jew. You need to be a completed Christian by becoming a Jew. At least religiously. That's what he's trying to communicate. Something needs to be added to the grace of God for you to be truly accepted by God. The sad thing is that the Galatian Christians 
began to believe this. And so Paul writes a letter to rebuke them or to at least correct them that Jesus plus anything leaves nothing. That is, you take the gospel and you add anything to the gospel. It could be circumcision, it could be Judaism, it could be the Christian evangelical boxes. Evangelicals often, in order to be a Christian, you have to be Republican. We're going to find out when we get to heaven, there are no Republicans in heaven. No Democrats either. Just Christians. And we're going to find out that we were wrong in 1980 when we formed a group to think that a president could bring some nirvana to our country. Because it's never been Jesus plus anything, including our politics. It can't be about going to the right movies. It can't be uh, going with the right girls. It can't be uh, uh, no dancing, uh, no cussing, and no kissing. Because the second syllable of all of those is sin. It's not unless you're Southern. That joke always loses it on you Northerners. And you think, I'm from Maryland. I'm below the Mason-Dixon line. Not in the South. Not from a Southern perspective. Somewhere the South ends about the middle of Virginia. Paul says in verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Paul's going to ask five questions, but really, this is the first of those five. You, this is the way Eugene Peterson puts it. You crazy people, have you lost your mind? Why in the world would you return to Judaism? You just got freed from Judaism. The word bewitched that is here, it appears only here in the entire Bible. Paul does this from time to time. He, get, he wants to explain these incredible truths of the gospel. And in order to do that, he breaks out a Greek lexicon. And he says, let me choose a word that just doesn't appear anywhere because that will stop you. If you don't know a word, you'll go look it up. And this word that's being translated, bewitched, it is more like what Ella Fitzgerald sang than what was on the 1970s program, Bewitched. Ella Fitzgerald in 1946 sang a Rogers and Hart song called Bewitched. Does anybody know it? The rest of it? Bothered and Bewildered. That's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. That when we add anything to the gospel, it turns us into slaves. We think adding something to the gospel just makes the gospel better. You know, it's kind of like you got a meal and the favorite part of the meal is that steak that's going to be medium rare. Why garnish it with anything? But that's what we do. We garnish the gospel. And Paul is saying when you garnish the gospel with anything, including Judaism, it's no longer the gospel. That's what he's trying to get across here. And if we do that, he's saying that's bewitched. That's putting you back under the spell that you just got out of. That's what's bothering you about life is that you think that God, now that he's got you to be a Christian, now you have to do the Christian things. That's bothering you because you know you can't. You know you're failing at that. And you're bewildered because you can't get enough effort to cross the line. 
Paul says in, in verse 1, a very odd statement. Right after he talked about being bewitched, he says, It was before your eyes, your very eyes, that Jesus Christ was, was publicly portrayed as crucified. You know how impossible that was? These churches in Galatia that would have received this letter would have been at least 20 years, maybe closer to 25 years after Jesus was crucified. They're Gentiles. Unlike today where everybody gets on a jet and they're all around. Right now, my wife's in San Diego. Tonight, she'll be here. There was none of that in the first century. No one who read, heard this letter read to them from Paul saw Jesus crucified. Much less have heard about him except through Paul. How in the world then can Paul say, it was before your very eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? You see, glaciers in modern Turkey, Palestine is hundreds if not thousands of miles away. How, what does Paul mean? Paul simply means that he has painted so clearly what Jesus has done for them on, by being crucified. He's explained the meaning and he's told the story so profoundly that they have adopted that story as their own as if they were there. It's like when Angela Bailey on Good Friday sang the song, Were You There? The whole song is depicting the, the sacrifice, the crucifixion of Christ and all of the meaning of that as if we were there. The definition of good preaching is that when he is done, that story, that meaning is your story, is your meaning as if you were there. And therefore, the beginning of the Christian's life is when the cross of Christ becomes so real personally that the story of Christ becomes our story. Paul's message was Christ crucified for you in your place, but some of them were turning back to a gospel that was no gospel at all. Here's the second question. Paul starts in verse 2 and says, let me ask you only this. That's a, that's a preacher's way of saying, I've got a lot to say here, but I want it to sound important, so I'm going to say there's only one thing. A modern version of that, you ever seen a preacher sometimes when they're in a new place, they'll take their watch off and they'll lay it as if they're trying to keep time? Do you know what that means when he, a preacher takes off his watch? Absolutely nothing. It means nothing. It's the same thing when Paul says, I've got this one thing to say. I've only got this to say. He's got a lot to say. But you're not going to pay attention unless he says, this is the most important thing I've ever said. Paul's not got one question. He's asking five questions. The way we do it here at EP, Dan's not in the room so I can embarrass him. Dan often says, I'm going to say one thing, but it's going to sound like two. Well, Paul says, I'm going to ask one question, but it's going to sound like five. He's got a lot he wants to communicate. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by doing works of the law? This is the question. Or by hearing with faith? Paul is talking about how someone becomes a Christian. Paul is saying that Christianity is not merely a, an assent to certain doctrines. If you believe that Jesus Christ was incarnated as the God-man. He lived the life 
you and I should have lived but did not and died the death in our place that we could not die. If you believe that, but you have never appropriated that to yourself, you know as much, you have ascended to as much as Satan has. Satan believes all that because he was there. There's no denying who Jesus is. They're not having an argument up in Minnesota about the the doctrines of Jesus. Because Satan knows who Jesus is. And he knows why he came. And if you're a Christian who has never made this personal, then you're no different than him. Because he's intellectually ascended to those facts. Paul is saying Christianity is more than assent. It's where the Holy Spirit of Christ has entered into your heart, into your life from the outside. Something foreign has come into your life. Foreign in the sense it's not you. It's not from you. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is not some some force like in Star Wars. It's a person and it's a personal presence of Christ uniting you to Jesus and to his benefits. A personal presence outside of you coming into you. This is why Paul says in the previous chapter, Galatians 2, uh, 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 verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Intellectual ascent, yes, that's what happened. I'm so united to Christ that what Christ did has been accounted to my record. That's what he means. But then we don't go on. Galatians 2.20 says, I no longer live. It's not me living. It's Christ living in me. I live by faith in the one who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's how Christianity is different than every other religion. Christianity has content. But it's not asking you merely to assent to the content, but to a person. A personal relationship where something on the outside is coming on the inside of you. This is what Paul means when he wrote another letter to the Romans. He writes in uh, chapter 1, I'm going to talk to you about the gospel. And you say, why is Paul talking about the gospel? This is, this is a long letter about the gospel. But if you want to know what Paul was about in Romans, it was a fundraising letter. It was an odd fundraising letter, but it was a fundraising letter. We know that because in chapter 15, it says, I'm writing you this so that you'll put money aside because I want to go where the gospel has never been preached in Spain. Paul has never been to Rome. He's introducing himself as a missionary. I'm going to Spain. I'm going to stop off in Rome. Can you help a man get to his mission field? He's no different than Pastor Greg Doty who says, I'm going to Scotland and I need you to help me get there. I need you to take up some money. I need you to support me on a monthly basis. By the way, he's $1,300 short. And he can get out of here and get onto the mission field. That's what Paul is doing in in Roman. You're thinking, that is not a way to write a, a, a missionary letter waiting all the way to chapter 15 before you tell us why you're writing the letter. But this is Paul, who has never met them, and he says, let me tell you what we've got in common. And he begins to preach the doctrines of grace by saying, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, what Jesus did for us. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jews and to the Greeks. For in this gospel, verse 17, 
A righteousness from God that is an alien righteousness outside of us is being accredited to our account by faith. And then he says this odd statement. The righteous live by the works of the law. Is that what it says? Come on, Presbyterians. You know it doesn't say that. By faith. Christians live by faith. We don't just become a Christian by faith. We grow as Christians by faith. That's what Paul is communicating. And then he says, I want to take that message that you believe in Rome, and I want to take it to where it's never been preached into Spain. So Paul, in our text, is asking this rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is? That is that buried in the question is the obvious answer. Did you make this happen by something you did or by hearing with faith? Did you become a Christian because you did something? Or did you passively by faith receive what someone else did for you? Of course, the answer is hearing by faith. Of course, the answer is, Paul, we heard about Jesus from you. How could we hear about somebody that's hundreds of miles away who died decades before uh, we, we knew about Jesus? How in the world could we hear about Jesus if we didn't hear it by you and receive it by faith? It should be obvious. And evidently, it's not because Paul says, you foolish Galatians, you crazy people. Why in the world have you returned to the old religion of you perfecting yourself. Which brings us to the third question. He reminds them that they've been acting foolish, that they have been foolish in verse 3. And then he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the power of God entering into your life from the outside, are you now trying to complete that work on your own by your own best efforts? And the answer is also implied, of course, or why would he ask the question if that's not what they were doing? You see, they were, they were wrestling with, yes, Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, but now that we're alone, it's all up to us. And therefore it became Jesus plus something. The basic tenet is, you need more. You need more than the gospel to complete you. And so the gospel is Jesus plus nothing, but they had decided that it's Jesus plus something. Justify ourselves through our own efforts. We try to make up for what we feel is lacking. Surely we have to do something in this Christian experience. And Paul is saying that is a bewitching. That's why you're bothered. That's why you're bewildered. That's why you act so foolish. It's because what God has started, you think, is now for you to pick up like a relay race. Jesus started the first leg, but the next leg is up to you. Paul's saying, I thought you understood this. I, I thought you were resting upon Christ alone, through faith alone. Jesus, but then Paul says, why are you looking for security and significance and worth by what you do? Why would you ever go back? Are you trying to add to this great work of your own? The metaphor that Paul uses, not here, but in another passage, is this one. And sorry for the graphicness of it. He says that when you start out by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ 
for your salvation. When you decide that's not enough, you need to add to it in some way. You're going to garnish the gospel with your best efforts. That's like a dog who has had a great meal and then goes into the corner and throws up and then eats it again and acts like that's food. Paul says that when we do that, we are like a dog returning to its vomit. And we call that vomit our food. Now, that's going to ruin your meal. That's, I knew it was going to come to you 11 o'clock. The first thing y'all are going to want to do is go eat. But I got news for you. When we add anything to Jesus, we're lapping that vomit up as if it's a gourmet meal. And Paul says, don't do that. It's not only not nourishing, it's not food. We, we say we need something to give us a sense of fulfillment. Every day we don't fight that feeling. We're saying that Jesus needs something. Whatever just self-justification project you're on, whatever self-fulfillment plan you're working on, that's Jesus plus something. And so he asked in the fourth verse this question. Did you suffer so many things in vain? You've come so far and you have struggled for so long. Why are you returning to what you have been, you have left behind, what you have been freed from? Use a different metaphor instead of a dog and his vomit. Think about a hamster. You put him in a cage. What do they do all day? They get on the wheel and they run and run and run. They could be the fastest creatures in the whole world. We have no idea because they never do anything but go in a circle. Christians are like that. We're running and running and getting nowhere because it was never designed to get us anywhere. It was only designed to get us exhausted. And that's why being a Christian where Jesus plus something is salvation and growth is so exhausting because it was never meant to get us anywhere. And Paul is saying, you Christians, will you just relax? Will you just, will you just realize you've made it? You've won? God requires nothing more of you than what he has provided. That's hard. See, we see the gap between our faith and our lives, and we think we've got to fill that gap. And so we're exhausting ourselves by trying to fill the gap between the, our, what we believe and the way we live. And Paul says, will you just relax? Jesus filled the gap. Because the only two eyes that matter are God's. And he says, you're mine. I love you. We, you know, we really don't deny or doubt God's love. What we really deny or what we really doubt is that God like us. Because we know that verse that says, love your neighbor. We don't have a problem with loving our neighbor. We just don't like our neighbors. They irritate us. They annoy us. They always want something from us. And so we don't really like them. But that's not how God operates. Do you know He likes you? That's hard to believe from up here. But God likes you. He doesn't just love you. God is not looking at you and looking at what you're lacking. God looks at you and sees what you have, which is Christ. And that's all you ever need for him. And therefore, God has provided what he has required. 
And when we add to that, we're insulting God. We're looking at His provision, His gift, and we're saying that's not good enough. The very thing that's driving us bewildered is that we think we need to do more. And God is saying, you do not have to do more. If you don't do one thing for the kingdom of God, you're still okay. If you don't give one dime to the kingdom of God, you're still okay. If you don't lead one person to Christ, you're still okay. God still likes you as much as if you had done all those things. And you might be saying, well, then, Bruce, I'm not going to do anything. If Christ is in you, you have no choice. You, you see, we think the purpose of the church is to get joyful obedience out of you. And therefore, we need to make sure that we tell you what to do in order to get that joyful obedience. We don't recognize that joyful obedience comes from joyful gratitude in the gospel. To the degree that we get joy out of what Jesus has done for us, that will produce joyful obedience. It always does. What's the first thing the guy does when he becomes a Christian with Jesus, the the rich guy, Zacchaeus? He ends up giving everything away. And you say, well, where's the law in giving everything away? There's not. He gave way more than the tithe, way more than the double tithe. He provided restitution to all the people he, he, he mistreated by a hundredfold. Nobody asked him to do that. But it was a joyful obedience because of a joyful gratitude of what Christ has done. You hear what Paul's saying? You and I crave approval by somebody. Why? Because we're still in doubt whether we've got God's approval. And Paul is saying, you can't get more approved by God than you have right now. No matter what you do, he can't approve you more. And no matter what you do against him, hurt what the cause of Christ, he won't love you any less. He can't approve of you any less. Because the approval, positively or negatively, had nothing to do with you. Is that insult you, that you had nothing to do with your salvation? That's the point. It's called the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is that you did nothing. Jesus plus nothing. And that makes us what? Insecure. Even more so than unbelievers because we can see the difference. We can see the gap. The discrepancy between what I believe and the way I I actually live. The lack of change that I see in my life, the lack of change you might see in your life, is devastating. But it's only devastating because we believe it's Jesus plus something. When we recognize it's Jesus plus nothing, there's no reason to be devastated because you're not on the final exam. The final exam has been given. But it was given to Jesus and he passed. And because he passed... You passed. You need to appropriate grace. This is what Richard Loveless, he wrote what I believe is the definitive work on how Christians grow. It's called the dynamics of the spiritual life. And he says this, only a fraction of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Jesus Christ in their lives. 
Let me make it a little simpler. He believes that most Christians do not live out of their justification. That is, that Jesus' work was enough. He goes on and he says, Many have a theoretical commitment to the doctrine of grace, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. What I mean by that is that we tend to think that we are acceptable to God, we're loved by God, we're in, we've made it, we've completed, based on how I'm doing in my personal walk with the Lord. And then when I'm seeing successes, when, when things are going well, when, when God seems to be really moving, then obviously I must be justified. And Richard Lovelace says, no, 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 that's backwards. That's how you get defeated. That's how you get bewildered. That's how you get bewitched. If you really want to grow in grace, then you recognize your sanctification is buried and based upon your justification. So when you don't see a lot of growth, when you see the gap between what you believe and the way in which you live, where do you go? Whatever, wherever you go, and if it's not Jesus, then that's the gospel with garnish, which makes it no gospel at all. It's good news because it's not just what gets you into the church. It's what perfects you into the image of Christ. Are you turning to Jesus? Are you basing how you are with God with what he has declared about you? You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Paul is saying we're using our own performance to give us the security and the acceptance of God rather than the fact that we are secure in God, we have been accepted to determine how our performance should go. Last question, and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper, and it's tied to the Lord's Supper in this way. He says in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, the works miracles among you, do so by the works of the law, by hearing with faith? Paul says, by faith. We need to go back again and again to where we began. There's this hymn. We didn't sing it this morning. We sang it at the 8 o'clock service. And it has this line. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust in the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Do you know what the sweetest frame is? We don't use that language anymore. It's, It's a 17th century language. The sweetest frame means my best emotions, my best feelings, my best passions, my best loves. The author of that hymn is saying, I don't rely on my best emotions. Why would I look to my worst emotions to determine how I'm doing? I look to what Jesus has done. Jesus' righteousness alone. I lean on that. I put my entire weight on that rather than on me. That's what a sweet frame is. The thing is, Paul says you never get past that. It's not like you you get that, you get your diploma, and you move on to graduate school. This is graduate school. I've been here 11 and a half years and have said this for 11 and a half years, and I can't tell you every year somebody comes and says, are we ever going to get past this gospel? And I remind them, there's nothing past the gospel. Anything else I would say would be Jesus plus something. This is the meat. Believing the gospel plus nothing is hard work. Because quite frankly, everything has grooved into us. 
Everything in our culture, everything about our family, everything about our lives has been grooved. You know what a groove is? The pews that you're sitting in have a groove. That is, the carpenters got together when they decided to make the pew that you're sitting in. They grooved so that two pieces could fit together. And that, and that groove is what that end sits on. In. You know, sometimes they make a mistake with a groove. How do they fix a groove? Some think you fix a groove by putting a new groove in. And you discard the old groove. The carpenters in the room know that's not how you make a new groove. You get rid of the old groove. You sand it down until the piece of wood is as flat as it once was. And then you put in a new groove. This is what God does for us. He says your groove is deep and wide in the wrong place to be in the kingdom. I'm going to groove a new groove in you. But I'm going to put it in a new place. And in order to do that, I've got to sand the old one away. We tend to think that Jesus looks at us and he says, I'm going to make you better. I'm going to make a better version of you. No, no, no. God does something way better than taking an old groove and making it deeper and broader. He gives a resurrection from ashes. You ever tried that? You know, Frankenstein was about taking some old parts and putting them together in a new person. But at least he worked with already material. Jesus says, that's too easy. Frankenstein is too easy. A resurrection from ashes means I've got nothing to work with. In fact, what I've got to work with is worse than nothing. It's ashes. We're getting a new groove by someone on the outside, a carpenter on the other side, sanding the old groove away until it's flat and then putting the new groove in. And we're running on that groove. Let me end with this idea. How do you... How do you grow? How do you say no to the old groove and yes to the new groove? Do you remember when you were in school and they said, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to tell you how to live through a fire. Do you remember what they told you that if you catch on fire, what you're supposed to do? They did to me. I don't know if they still do it in school, but they always had these three instructions. Do you remember what they were? So do they still do that in school? They still do that in school. Some little kid told me, all right, I want to apply that to the gospel and to your groove. I want you to stop what you're doing when you can to perfect yourself. When you see that you're doing something to make God's work completing you, stop doing that. Because you can't groove yourself any more than that pew could be grooved on its own. But then you need to drop and drop what you're trusting in besides Jesus. The righteous live by faith, not by works. That doesn't mean that God doesn't call you to work. But if you're trusting in that work for anything, that's Jesus plus something. Stop what you're doing. Drop what you're trusting in and roll your entire weight, your entire trust onto the gospel of grace because we are to live by faith. We are the people of faith. This is Jesus plus nothing. 
It's too easy to fall back under the spell of the old mindset. It's too easy to be bewildered and bothered and bewitched. And Paul says that's because you need a transformation. You need to be made new. And that is something on the outside coming into you, not you doing something. And thanks be to God because we had fouled that up too. If we had any part in that, we'd mess it up. And that's why he said, no, just rest in what I have done. And we need that preached. You know when this book is ever preached, everything changes. How many of you grew up Methodist? You, can, you don't have to be embarrassed. <laughs> Do you know the founders of Methodism, the Wesley boys? Both of them came to Christ by reading not Galatians, but Luther's preface, his introduction to his commentary on Galatians. That's how powerful the gospel is in Galatians, that all you need to read is a preface to the explanation of Galatians, that you don't have to do anything. And as a result, Charles and John Wesley come to Christ. And because they come to Christ, when you go over the Appalachian Mountains, the gospel is everywhere. Why? Because those two boys got a movement of missionaries who wouldn't wait for seminary who went over the mountain. That old story that if you see a a, a path wide enough for a human being, that was a Baptist missionary. If it's wide enough for a horse and a man, that was a Methodist missionary. And if it's wide enough for a wagon, that was a Presbyterian missionary because he was bringing all his books. (laughs) You hear what Paul's saying? The world is turned upside down when you don't add anything to the gospel. Because when you do, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make the gospel impure. It nullifies it. Because the power of the gospel is in the righteousness of Christ that can only be received by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful people who are loved by you, who are liked by you, who've been accepted by you, who have been forgiven by you, and who have adopted by you into the family. And so let us, by faith, live out of that rather than what we can do as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.